And those who are remaining here, will you take your Bibles and open to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. As you're locating that portion of Scripture, I want to ask you to recall last week's scenario. Would you do that with me? Mentally recall it. If you weren't here last week, here it is in a nutshell. We kind of painted a picture for you of the gospel going to an area, perhaps a a community, a town, a city. The gospel landing, being believed, and then a church being planted, a community of believers being established, and then those believers over a period of years just obeying what Jesus said. We talked about how that occurs. How do people long-term obey the Lord within their church setting among families like that? And we understood from the text that it was because of the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. But that's our only true long-term motivation. But I have a different question for you today. You ready? What's that same church to do, the believing church that's obeying long-term that was planted in birth because of the gospel coming in, what's that same church to do with people who don't obey? Now you're probably getting nervous, like, oh my goodness, here comes a barn burner, right? Not at all. I will say this, this is probably the oddest missions message you'll ever hear. But I'm simply going to walk you through the the closing verses of Paul's letter in context. And often we start in verse 6 and we explain these verses and teach them without realizing they come after verse 5, which comes to verse 4, to verse 3. Are you with me? After chapter 2. The context of this specific portion is that the word of God speed ahead. That it be honored and glorified. And then to close it, Paul begins to talk about the validity and necessity of hard-working people. Like, that seemed like a disconnect. Hard-working people who are obeying what Jesus said. Like, like, Todd, what's the deal? I think what Paul is doing is this. He asks in verse 4, and he affirms in verse 5, he says, I believe you're going to obey. I have confidence in you that you will. I'm persuaded that you'll obey now and in the future. That's what it says, 3, 4, and 5. And then he talks about what to do with those who don't obey. Because Both of those situations, watch me church, listen very carefully. Both of those scenarios are important to the gospel. Nothing undermines gospel credibility like a church filled with disobedient believers. It's almost like, yeah, we're going to pray the gospel speed ahead, but we're not going to do anything it says here. Like, eh, that's something's wrong with that picture, right? So let's talk about what do we do? What's a church to do? With those who don't obey. My goal is to explain this text to you via a pretty simple outline. I don't normally give outlines, but in this case it helps the text make more sense, I think, to us. So we'll explain the verses 6 through 18 via an outline. I'll give it to you in a simple sentence. We'll take a few questions. If you have some, guests, members, attenders, feel free to text them in. We'll take as many as we can. And then I want to kind of end with some principles and proddings about this text to those of us, and connect work and God's mission together, all right? Here's the text for us, 2 Thessalonians 3. I'll try to read most of it in one sitting here, just to get the flow of it. 
Paul says, now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul here is not writing his opinion, and he's making sure they know that. He's writing authoritative scripture for the church. And so he says to them, I'm writing in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ a command that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. So Paul is asking and, and, and commanding that this, these obedient believers keep an appropriate distance from those who are out of line with scriptural commands. It's referred to here as tradition they received from us. I think it's a reference to the first and second epistle of Thessalonians. And Paul is saying, people who are out of step with what we are writing, authoritative scripture, keep an appropriate distance from them. Now let's explain what we mean by that, first of all, just briefly. When Paul says keep away from, he's just talking about what I call a discipline of distance. It's an action we take to, to indicate and communicate that something's not right, that there's a disobedience on that person's part in regards to Scripture, not with our opinion, by the way, not with a preference, but with Scripture. And he says that these are the kinds of people who, this is not a mistake, it's not a, a sin, one-time sin that there's repentance of. We're talking about someone who is consistently, blatantly, long-term, uh, out of line. The word is called idleness. It's the word submit with an A in front of it. So pardon me for a moment, I'll give you some grammar here. I think you'll know this, but uh, in, in most uh, grammar circles, if you put an A on the beginning of something, it kind of forms the negative of it. So in this case, the word for submit is hupotasso. He says here, if someone's walking in idleness or ahupotasso is the word. So you put the A in front of it, it means someone who's just not submitting. He's talking about an unteachable person. Someone who long-term, blatantly, and the word's also kind of a military word, they're kind of out of step, they're out of rank, they're out of line. If you're in the military or you've had an experience in that, you can understand Everyone's in line, they're in order, they're, they're following suit, so to speak. It's orderly. It's following the command, right? But someone jumps out of that and says, I'm going to march to my own drum. I'm going to kind of keep step with myself. They're, they're not in line, they're out of line. They're disorderly. They're not in submission. So I'm not talking about one-time sin or a mistake or something we struggle with and we're repenting of regularly that we're getting help with. Can we say we all struggle with things? My hand's up is yours. It should be, right? Man, we're all involved in repentance every day. We're talking about someone who intentionally, long-term, and blatantly says, I refuse to listen. I'm, 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 my ears are closed. I'm rebellious. I'm out of step. I'm out of line. Paul says to that person, we're to keep away from them. That's the general understanding of the situation here, Okay? You might want to note that as like the first outline point. Here's the situation. It's actually idle. Um, what do you call it here? Idle or rebellious living, not listening. But here's the specific way it showed up. It showed up in, in, in some of the people not willing to work. Okay, That's not the general attitude he's addressing. He's addressing uh, an unsubmissive, long-term kind of Someone who doesn't want to listen. But how did it show up in Thessalonica in the mid-first century? It says here, For you know how you ought to imitate us, 
because we were not this way. The word idle there, same as used in verse uh, 6. He says, we were not idle when we were with you. We weren't out of step with God's commands. We were obeying them. He says, we did not eat anyone's bread without paying for it. In other words, there was no stealing. You might even use the word loafing, mooching. Those are my vernacular there, okay. Paul says here, when we were with you, we worked hard, kind of paved our own way, so to speak. We, with toil and labor, we worked night and day so that we wouldn't be a burden to any of you. It wasn't Paul's intent. Watch this now. It wasn't Paul's intent to show up in Thessalonica, Acts 17, and not listen to anyone, but just ask for their money, and then say, okay, here's the gospel. See, that's a selfish approach to missions. Hear me well, church. But Paul's intent instead was a selfless approach to missions. He went to a new area, unexposed to the gospel, and out of great love, he worked another job while he ministered to those people so that they wouldn't think he was there just as like the latest TV evangelist wanting to take an offering first. (laughs) I'm speaking very plainly to you, but I want you to catch the the, the sense of this context. Paul's whole demeanor was selflessness. It was caring for people to the point that he was willing to work another job while he ministered there as a quote-unquote missionary. Now, notice verse 9. Paul never says that it's wrong for missionaries or pastors or those who are gospel messengers to actually receive support. He doesn't say that's wrong. He says he chose instead to work a second job while he did this to not be a burden. But he says in verse 9, it was not because we do not have that right. Do you see that? So if you read 1 Corinthians 9, you'll find that there is a biblical explanation for supporting gospel messengers, missionaries, pastors. It's not wrong for a body of believers to say we'll financially care for this person or that person as they care for us spiritually. It's not wrong at all. Paul says, though, he did not take advantage of that initially because he didn't want to be a burden and because he wanted to give them an example. An example of what? Of what hard work was all about. An example to imitate, he says in verse 9. And so he says, when we were with you, we gave you this command that if you're not willing to work, let him not eat. Paul did not want to show up and appear not to be willing to work and yet be mooching, so to speak, off of the new believers. And then turn around and say, by the way, all of you should work hard. He wanted to model what he was preaching. It's a great trait of Paul's. Selfless modeling of what he's preaching. So he did. He worked his job. He ministered as the gospel messenger. He brought the gospel to Thessalonica, Acts 17. And he gave God's commands. One of them in this case, this epistle was this, that if you're not willing to work, you don't eat. Because we hear that some among you walk in idleness. So Paul gave this command because there were some who weren't working. They were busy at other people's business, but not busy at work. You see that in verse 11? That's a great word, isn't it? They were called busy bodies, not busy workers. (laughs) The word just simply means you're interested in their work and not your own. You've seen this person, haven't you? They're the ones who walk around your office with a cup of coffee or a can of Coke or a bottle of water, and they're talking about everyone else while their desk is empty. (laughs) Sometimes you want to say, could you go do your job? But they'd much rather talk to you about your job, wouldn't they? Paul says here, you know what? The command is not to be a busy body. Instead, be a busy worker. 
And so he gives another command. He says, now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here again, second mention of Christ as the, the source of his authority. To do their work quietly, earn their own living. Don't focus on other people's jobs. Focus on your job. Do it well. Do it diligently and earn your living or eat your own bread is one translation. Now I want you to notice some things in this text. I'm not going to go to our lab and show it to you. Uh, sometimes I'll draw out on our lab kind of how I mark my Bible to kind of show you how I arrive at certain conclusions. But I'll just do this here verbally. Notice in verse 6 the phrase, Now we command you, brothers. Do you see that? Mark that as one bookend. Look at verse 12 at the phrase, now such persons we command. Do you see that? That's the second bookend. What these verses initially are doing is they're bookended with the word command. And what is the command? Inside the command is the explanation that, that Christians should work hard, not loaf, not mooch, and the, those that do should have an appropriate distance between them and other believers. That's kind of what's happening here. In fact, you see the word for in verse 10, the word for in verse 11, the word for in verse 7. For is an explanation word. So what you see is two commands, I should say two bookends, one command, and the word for in between it shows us something. Paul's explaining his command. The command is this. Do not associate with those who are mooching or loafing, that's not the proper example of a Christian. It's not, the, it's not a credible witness of the gospel. How does one do that? That's what he says in verse 13. He says, you keep doing good. Don't get involved with their business of loafing and mooching, being undiligent, unproductive. He says, you keep doing good. What is doing good in this passage? I think it goes back to verse 12. It's doing your own work and earning your own living. It's doing your job. Faithfully, industriously, diligently. So you keep doing that. And those that don't obey what we say in this letter, which I think in context would be to work your job. Don't be a busy body. Be a busy worker. He says you're to take note of that person and have nothing to do with them. Again, this mirrors verse 6. When he says to keep away from that kind of brother. Someone who's unteachable, who doesn't listen, is going to do their own thing. He says, you, you take note of them, don't have anything to do with them, that he may be ashamed. Don't regard him as an enemy, though. So there's this, there's this, there's this level of like relationship that occurs. It's at a distance, so they're not an enemy. They're in the family, but there's an issue that they're unwilling to listen about, and so we keep an appropriate distance, and we warn them as a brother. And before I move on and talk about these last two or three verses, I want to explain to you the source of this situation. Because the situation was one of, of Paul rebuking idleness or unlisteningness, okay? It showed up in that people wouldn't want to work. But why did that happen? Okay, there's no explicit verse in this chapter, but I need to give the context to you. I think it's because there must have been a false letter, a report, that the Lord had already come. We see this in chapter 2, by the way. You see that in verses 1 through 3? Look there with me at your Bibles. Paul here is trying to keep them from being shaken. And he says, don't worry. No matter what a letter says or a spirit or a spoken word, he says, if, if this false person or false message or false spirit says that the day of the Lord has come, it's wrong. And he explains to them there are two things that have to happen and that they'll see them 
before the day of the Lord occurs. So don't worry, the day of the Lord's not happened yet. But my guess is, and this is a pretty good guess, by the way, there were those who had believed that false message. And you know what they did? They stopped working. They said, well, if the end has already come, man, who cares what I do? We're just waiting, you know, we're just waiting, I guess, for uh, the final blow. I'll just quit my job. It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter how I work because God's already come back and I must have missed it. It's over. This sense of perhaps like, you know, uh, desperation. So they believed falsely and then they behaved wrongly. That's what I think's going on here. I think the source of this situation is false doctrine. They believed wrongly. It'd be similar to the folks in the past several years who have, you know, moved to certain parts of our country. And they've quit their jobs. They've sold everything. They've built massive holes in the ground. They get lots of canned goods. And they tuck away because the end is coming, you know. Now, I wouldn't deny the end is coming. But their approach to that is actually unbiblical because they actually quit being a hard worker and become um, almost parasitic. Does that make sense? That's against God's word. So some of that same thing's happening here. I think the, the, the context and the history of this is that there must have been folks believing this false message and it caused them to start behaving wrongly, to quit their jobs, to quit working. And that was a bad witness to the gospel. That brought terrible... Um, it bring credibility. It, it reduced the gospel's credibility in that area. And so Paul is writing saying, if you're in this obedient church, but you're not obeying, here's what we're going to say. That those who are obeying should keep an appropriate distance from those who are disobeying. For the, from those who are long-term blatantly refusing to listen to God's commands, we're going to keep an appropriate distance from you so that eventually you'll repent and realize you're doing wrong. I think this is exactly why Paul in verse 16, 17, and 18 makes some of these comments. He says that the Lord of peace will, will give them peace. That would be a, an appropriate request, wouldn't it? If you're in this situation, if you're keeping a distance from someone, if you're putting a relationship kind of on the line in some ways, God's peace would be very important. Paul even says in verse 17, I write this greeting with my own hand. It's the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. I think Paul here is affirming the genuineness of this letter to set it apart from the false letter. He's saying, what I'm writing here about working and about bringing credibility to the gospel, this is God's authoritative command. It's not the false letter. And Paul's kind of signing his genuine signature to it. And then, of course, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. No doubt, in all of this, grace just covers and is important. So, When you see this text, I think we have to admit something, that this is an odd way to close a letter to a new church, isn't it? Like, man, why would he talk about something more pleasant? Why can't he just make us feel good? It's because, look at this, because Paul knew that for that church to actually see the request in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, that the word of God speed ahead, for that church to stay on mission, it happened with them, pray it continues to happen, that the disciples are made, in a continuous fashion, then the folks in that church must be obedient and those who are disobedient need to be brought into the line of obedient followers because disobedience discredits the gospel. I hope you're hearing this. 
Listen very carefully, church. Disobedience discredits the gospel. It causes people to wonder, well, do you really believe what you say? Does your church really believe that? And people who are watching ask unnecessary questions at times because our lives, if they're disobedient, it just brings, it breeds a lack of credibility. And this is not God's fault. It's our unwillingness to hear and to listen. And so Paul here actually just kind of lays out a process by which the church can bring back into the fold those who are living disobediently, who aren't listening and are unteachable. And it's what I call the discipline of distance. This would be what I would say is the solution to the situation. An appropriate biblical distance where someone is is aware that my actions are causing relational distance, and yet they love me. And would we all agree this is where the rub is? It's hard to do this in love. Would you, would you agree with that? Could someone nod and say, yeah, we're with you, Todd? Yeah, I think we all would be honest enough to admit that in a spiritual family, like a physical family, discipline that restores and corrects is necessary. Just as in your physical family, you're not going to turn a blind eye or a deaf ear to any of your children that just do whatever they want. You're not going to do that. If you did, we would probably chuckle at that. Like, oh. And when you um, discipline correctly and effectively, people expect that. It's kind of normal. It's amazing, though, how often in the church, that very principle, people wonder, like, why are you doing that to your, to your members? It's because we love them. And we actually expect obedience to God's commands. You see, this is what I think is amazing. We love the first part of the Great Commission. Go into all the world. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. We love that, don't we? Teaching them to what? Obey everything Jesus commanded. I think sometimes on that part of the Great Commission, churches get weak. I mean, we love to bring them in and dunk them. Flash a number up. Man, 25 people were saved last month. They live like pagans still. (laughs) You know what? It's high time the church realized the Great Commission is a process of loving people in salvation, in the subsequent step of baptism, and then in a constant relationship of teaching them how to obey everything Jesus said. That's what a church is. It's a collection of sinners saved by grace in relationship with each other, willing to walk in accountability with each other as we learn to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that may seem like an odd message to you. You may think, man, he's coming at us hard. I think it's pretty plain in the Bible. This is what we do. And I I love the fact that Paul puts this at the end of this idea about mission because I think it's one of the ways that we we help further the mission along from our perspective we just become unconditional obeyers and we care for folks in our body who aren't obeying and aren't listening because we want the gospel to make great progress we want the gospel to have great credibility those who've yet to believe and one of the ways it does is when those who believe simply work hard at their jobs and they're not mooching and they're not loafing, 
but they're doing their own work, they're paying their own bills, they're eating their own food. It sends a massive message of credibility to those who are watching. In fact, let me just say this to you. Those of you who, who know, you know, I'll, never, I'll probably never live somewhere else and, and go as a missionary. That's not what God has called for me. It's not what that assigned me to. That's great. But because you're working your job every single day faithfully, diligently, because you manage that account honestly, because you spend that money wisely for your boss or your company, because you nanny those kids lovingly, because you show up on time, because you do your work, because you're ethical with integrity, people are watching you. And I want to say to you, you have a great opportunity to be on mission as well. Thank you for living out Christian principles and biblical commands in your workplace. People that watch, they give the gospel credit. You bring credibility to our set of beliefs when you work in that manner. When you run your company correctly and properly, you treat people lovingly and appropriately. All those things. I just want to say, because that's the vast majority of churches, you know. The churches aren't filled with people like me. (laughs) They're not filled with our missionaries. We have 12 actual partners in parts of the globe. There are filled people like you who on Monday mornings get up and go to their jobs. They own their business. And I want to say to all of you who are doing that ethically, biblically, selflessly, thank you for being concerned about the mission of making disciples in the everyday, workaday, normal world. You are making a difference. Thank you. You see, God values your work. And when you do that, humbly, faithfully, diligently, you bring credit to the the work of God in your life. You show that it's possible to live selflessly, not selfishly. So thank you very much. Can we put this in a single sentence? Um, here's kind of how I worded this. And then we'll take a few questions and we'll make a couple of last-minute observations. But here's kind of how I've worded this. Applying the discipline of appropriate distance is used by God to remove false doctrine and restore disobedient believers. I know this is an odd message. I know you're thinking, man, Todd, this is go month. How does this fit into that? But it must be that as the church continues to obey the Lord and people are watching, when we take seriously the command to obey, if there are those who don't want to obey, they refuse to listen time after time, this is their continuous state, then the church lovingly, believers lovingly, separate in a certain kind of way that shows they're believing wrongly and behaving wrongly Please come back to the church and become one of the obedient followers of Christ. I think this is how God brings people back into the fold and how he keeps the church pure doctrinally. So applying the discipline of appropriate distance. And it is part and parcel to the church on mission. It's how we help each other become more obedient. All right? Now, this being the take-home truth, let's see if there's any questions first. From, from you guys about the text or maybe some specific things in, in, uh, for sure. I got one from last week, you know. One of you asked me in the middle of last week's message on 3, 4, and 5 what verse 14 meant. I was like, man, we're not even there yet. But I'll answer it this week. How should believers live out verse 14? Not associating with those who do not obey. And, and I don't know if I can give you a specific protocol or a list. Like, here's how to do it. But I will give you a general 
question to ask yourself if you're involved in a relationship with someone like this. Here, here's, a, here's what I would encourage you to ask. Is what I'm about to do approving of their lifestyle? So how you use your resources, how you spend your time, um, what you like on Facebook. If, if something you send or do or say would suddenly indicate, yeah, I approve. I think that's where you've got to back up and say, wait a second. Uh, your, your, your unteachableness, your inability to listen to God's commands, um, it's a problem here. And I'm your friend and brother, but I don't approve of that, so I'm going to create a distance. I'm going to create somewhat of a relationship canyon so that you get this point. It doesn't mean you're not friends at all because Paul says, we're, he says, one of them is a brother. Paul admits there's a family connection still. But he does then also say there has to be some type of distance so that they get the point in humility and love that something needs to change. That you need to become more teachable and, and, and listen. And especially in this case, quit loafing and mooching and get to work. So I would say a good question to ask is, is what I'm about to do, say, spend, or like, will it give the sense that I approve? And if it does, then I would back away from that action. This is something only answered in each situation and with each person. I can't answer every single specific for you. But I think that's a pretty safe question, kind of a place to launch from. You with me? Um, It's difficult. It's hard. I think, personally, the Christian church in general has avoided this chapter. I think our culture leans on us very hard. We don't ever want to be assumed to be mean or unloving. We don't want to be misinterpreted, and so we just avoid any type of conversation or decision that would indicate that maybe we're actually creating a distance when actually the Bible calls you to do exactly that. That there may be times if someone's unteachable, and out of line, disorderly, especially involving mooching or not working, that you actually intentionally create a distance. You don't enable so that they would learn and then begin to obey. I can tell by your looks, you're like, man, this is a crazy message. Well, we don't skip passages. This is just what's next. And this is important to our mission because it really speaks to credibility. Is there another question, Alan? There's two more. Let's see if we can take them real quickly, can we? What's the difference between this kind of private distancing versus public church discipline? Great question. I'm going to get to that in my uh, principles and proddings, the application. So can I just explain that next? Just hold that question. I will get to that, I promise. There is a difference. So thank you. Great question. Let's take the next one. Do these disciplinary actions only relate to laziness or any disobedience? Man, it's a great question. I think the principle of appropriate distance relates to someone who's unteachable about any command of the Bible. It historically is illustrated by a lazy, mooching attitude in Thessalonica. So for sure, that one. But if someone... And Paul starts off in general. He says, just keep away from brothers who are not walking in submission to the tradition you receive from us. So I think, in general, if there's a command, and understand, it's a command of Scripture. 
So your opinions don't count. <laughs> Mine don't either. Your preferences, your personal likes, just those aren't in play here. But the commands of Scripture, if they're not being listened to on a long-term, continual basis, if it's just an unsubmissive spirit to that, to God's Word, yes, I think that's when appropriate distance should be applied in love and humility. One of the times in this case it was done is in regards to people's attitude towards work. But could it be about something else? It's possible. The real key to look for is an attitude over the long haul of someone who's just arrogant and unwilling to listen, who's unsubmissive to God's commands. Now, can I just say to you this? You may look at me like, wow, this is tough teaching, but the truth is, this is the Bible's consistent message. In fact, in Proverbs, there are several times Solomon, he would warn men, he would say, men, do not become friends with an angry man, lest you learn his ways and become like him. And we love that verse. Yeah, man, preach it, Solomon. But let Paul say it in these words. We kind of like, oh, man, Paul's. Uh, we're told even that slothful, lazy men, uh, Solomon says, do not become close with them, lest you learn their ways. You see, we believe fundamentally, and you would too, that, that bad associations can corrupt good character. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 15. So scriptures teach what he's saying here. He's just kind of laying this out for us in a very specific way. And sometimes as churches we have to grapple and wrestle with how do we do this. So yes, I think it is to to disobedience and an unwillingness to listen. In this case it involved uh, the idea of laziness and mooching. But it could be other areas that are commanded in scripture. So let me give you a a couple of um, principles that I think will address the middle question. In fact, I want to give you seven, but I'd never get through all seven in the remaining few minutes. I know that. So here they are real quickly. Take a picture and then read them later, all right? No, I'm kidding you about that. You can snap a picture real quick. These are also in your Lighthouse study guide. I'm only going to highlight the odd ones briefly. And there's no pun intended in the fact that they're odd. I mean the odd-numbered ones. This whole message probably seems a little odd to some of you, I can imagine. But let me just highlight the odd-numbered ones. Can I do that? And I'll try to do this briefly, because my goal here is to answer that middle question. First of all, sound doctrine and sound deeds go hand in hand. If you want to behave right, can I just encourage you to to believe right? And if you're not believing right, you will eventually behave wrongly. Do you know that? I think that's the source of this situation. They believed the false letter, and it affected how they lived. If you if if you don't change your actions. Delve into how you think, what you believe, and learn truth. Learn God's truth. It will be the single greatest thing you can do to learn to live rightly. It's hard, watch this church, listen to me. It's hard to obey in a vacuum, isn't it? Like sometimes preachers get up and yell about obeying and being obedient. And you're like, well, I'm not sure what to do. How do I do that? I, I get that. I'm with you. So I want to just encourage you, learn truth how does god say we should live in this case he says work matters so if you're here and you're like i don't want to get a job that would be an unteachable spirit <laughs> let's get out of that let's oh god says work is valuable and and right and it mattered it's not a result of the fall hard work may be by the way the fall made work hard the fall didn't invent work you with me 
work was God's invention from the beginning. It's sacred. It's a beautiful thing. So just embrace that work matters. And if you're in this camp and you're not willing to work, just say, I'm wrong. Move over here and work. Get a job, okay? So, So understand that sound doctrine and sound deeds matter. Another observation is this, a principle, maybe a prodding. Work and uh, the mission of making disciples, man, they go hand in hand. And your work matters to that. I mentioned this earlier. Here's two reasons why. I think to a certain degree and from a certain angle, work brings credibility to the gospel and it brings sustainability to the gospel, to the mission of making disciples. Does that make sense? Now, I'm not saying that it, it makes the gospel more powerful. God does that. We're aware of that theologically. But practically, when folks in a new community to which the word of God has sped and landed and is glorified, what says, wow, this thing works, is when they see you working. Selflessly giving of what you make and of your time to help other people. Nothing speaks louder about the gospel than your very own selfless lifestyle. It's the exact opposite of those who come in and want to mooch. They're selfish. But when the gospel lands, and we see that for our sakes, Christ became poor, that he took our place, and then we begin to live that out and model that while it speaks volumes to people. Also in sustainability. Can I just say to you that I think one of the reasons Paul did not take support from these people initially was because he knew that if he took that money then it might prevent those very people from having money later to spread that same gospel message so i think to some degree financially at least there's a reason that people are working and they're giving it's so that the gospel doesn't end with us in this place or this generation it is sustainable with its credibility so again, I want to repeat this. I know it's, I know it's repetitious. That's repetitious there in and of itself, isn't it? But hear this, church. Those of you who are, who are just working your job so faithfully, thank you. Your work matters in the mission of making disciples. And I'm proud to pastor a church. I mean, in the right sense, I'm proud to pastor a church where there's such hardworking, obedient people who are sacrificial with their time and their money so that the gospel doesn't just stay here, but it gets out beyond here. Thank you. It's a joy to pastor you. Your work matters in the mission of making disciples. Another observation. This is the fifth one in the list. This will answer the middle question. Everyone in the church has a responsibility to informally keep other Christians accountable in their personal lives. Now, I suspect a good portion of you balk at that. I realize, I, all week I'm like, this is the one that's going to land like a grenade. There's going to be shrapnel probably among the audience. But I want to say to you something, that if, if this hits you odd, if you think, well, that's not true, then you've listened to more of the culture than you have the scriptures. In fact, 1 Thessalonians 5, let me read you the first epistle of Paul. He said the very same thing he said in the second epistle, but he said it a little more nicely. This is 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and, and admonish you. Esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, watch verse 14. Urge you, brothers. This isn't to the church formally. This is to the church informally. Everyone in there. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Same word. 
So to the brothers at large, which is a family word for those in the church, man, admonish those who are unsubmissive and not listening, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. The question is not, should we hold each other accountable? The question is, how do we do that? Could somebody say amen to that? You with me? The Bible is clear. We are responsible to help each other be obedient. The the problem is most of us don't do it very well. And I've had some real mess-ups, you know that? Uh, Mainly with my kids, you know? You want them to obey and you're kind of in the moment and you just feel passionate you say something and then it kind of goes off the wire and you're like, man, they think I'm like the devil incarnated here instead of their parent. You know, you you go back, you apologize. Jill and I have done it to each other. We've done it to each other in the church. I've had it from you. I've done it to you. No one is batting a thousand at how to do this. But can I say to you, we can't stop trying. Because we're in the same family. We hold each other responsible and accountable. So listen very carefully. In how you do this, do it gracefully, lovingly, patiently, honestly. If you're wrong in the way you do what's right, you're wrong. Can I say that again to you? If you're wrong in the way you do what's right, you're wrong. Now, you may not be wrong about what you're, what you're saying, but the way you're doing it, it comes off perhaps so ungraceful that then what you're trying to say is never heard and and I'll admit there are times that we're misinterpreted. Maybe you actually don't say it wrongly. They just think you're saying it wrongly. There's that whole issue. I get that. But I think I'm honest enough with you to say that this is not really an up for grabs principle. The issue is how do we implement it? And so I just want you to know that this is that informal area of church discipline that I think should happen before it gets to the formal stage. The formal stage described in 1 Corinthians 5, I think Matthew either 16 or Matthew 18, some steps the church should take in dealing with continuously disobedient, unteachable people. But long before we get to that stage, is there a possibility that perhaps in just the normal relationships there are peaceful, loving, honest believers who are willing to hold each other responsible? I think there should be. Here's a good way to work that out. And then I'll wrap up with just one more observation. Here's a good way to work that out. Can, can Just get in a lighthouse, get in a small group, and be honest. I mean, sometimes we get in the habit of like just asking the questions on the study guide because, you know, they're safe to a certain degree. <laughs> and Chris is writing that. He's writing for hundreds of people. Man, use those as guides, but dig in deeper. Split your group up, guys and girls. Because there are things you'll ask each other as guys you won't ask each other when there's mixed company. In other words, do what you have to do to to really ask some hard questions and hold each other responsible and accountable for obeying what Jesus says. There's a group in Bondurant. It's a group of guys. They're on a text group. It's called the Iron Sharpens Iron. And I'm in that group. I don't know how I got in it, though, but I'm in that group. And, man, they, they, they come at you hard every day about obedience. They're not letting me off the hook. I'm not letting them off the hook. It's a pretty, pretty tough group. So find ways to urge people on to obedience. Remember, the question's not, should we do it, but rather how.
And I would prompt you to do it lovingly, gracefully, patiently, but by all means, have the courage to own your family responsibility. Lastly, remember that the goal of both informal and formal discipline is restoration, not rejection. This is one of the reasons I believe that this is talking about informal discipline to a large degree. Because Paul admits, he says, see them as a brother. They're not an enemy. In formal discipline, we're actually told to, to kind of exercise some type of excommunication. Some type of, of understanding to where we see them as a Gentile. The word there is for pagan. But Paul never makes that in this case. He's saying, man, they're our brothers. Let's, let's just entreat them. Let's, let's go after them with love and humility. So our goal, of course, in both is restoration, that folks are brought back to the family. So is this an odd message? If you're a guest, you're thinking, man, what is up with your church? I admit that this was the, this was the waters we navigated today. I admit that. I prayed all week, God, I don't know how this is going to settle. But can I say to you, my heart in this is that we see the connection between obedient people and the gospel's progress. I'm not trying to harp at you with my opinion. If your preferences are different, that's great. But where the word of God speaks, we have a responsibility to come under that with submission. And as one of your pastors, my job is to bring this to you and say, here this commands, let's come under it. Because when we do, the world then looks and says, wow, they actually believe what God says. Yes, we do. How do they know that? Because we are doing it. We're obeying it. So church, my heart's not beating to get into your personal preferences, your areas of freedom. I have no desire to control your life. I have one burning desire that God get maximum glory from a body of believers she is saved because we are obeying everything he told us to do. That's all I'm after. I think it's simple. We're just trying to obey the Great Commission. And as we do, then let's duplicate that somewhere else and in somewhere else. Let's see the gospel continue to spread and God make more disciples because we are obedient to everything he said, even bringing in and bringing back those who are disobedient by applying the discipline of appropriate distance.